Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to another episode of the Hacked Podcast. Today we have Alan Burson on the line. Welcome on, Alan. Thank you, Pat. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. So the listeners know Alan's been involved in information security and identity protection for a strong majority of his career. He's been involved in many different capacities from research side to sales everywhere in between. In the early stages of his career, he worked with a group of dark web researchers and saw the rise of identity theft and data breaches firsthand. Today, we're going to talk about data breaches. We're going to talk about the evolution of data breaches. And uh, one thing that I think is really missed in the community is uh, your post-breach response and, and actually having those conversations. So we're going to talk about how to do that effectively. Let's get things kicked off by you know, learning a little bit more about your story, Alan. Uh, how did you get into the profession and how did you get to the level you are today? Yeah, I appreciate it. So uh, several years ago in Austin, I worked for a, a security startup that was ultimately bought by Symantec. So we looked at the heuristics uh, of viruses instead of just looking at it as a oh, it's a Trojan, that's bad, let's put it in the bucket, let's quarantine it. But we actually looked at what it did, and as viruses started evolving, and, and maybe a Trojan did one thing six months ago, now it actually does something different, and all the antivirus software was looking just for that first part. Okay, it, it's changing file names. But we looked, and we looked deeper to see what it was, was doing after that. So uh, I worked with a group of, they were all ex-hackers, I was the only non-hacker but they taught me to become a hacker or appear as a hacker on the dark web. And, and again, the dark, dark web was much different back then. It wasn't this highly publicized thing that news talks about. It was really dark. It was really deep. All hackers in there selling everything. So we would go and pose as hackers and buy the latest form of a virus and then study what it would do. One of the most common ones back then, uh, I believe it was called Optiplex. And what that did was... It allowed a hacker to join an online poker group and then get them to install it. And then once they installed it, that hacker could then see the hand that they were playing. So these hackers were going in and stealing everybody else's money. They thought they were the greatest poker players, but in fact, it was just because they saw their hands. I had been there for a few months and was approached by someone to see if I wanted to buy someone's identity. And back then, identity theft wasn't what it is today. And I inquired, well, what does this include? It was first name, last name, address, banking details, social, credit card. It was absolutely everything. And I, I asked, you know, how much? He said, five bucks, it's yours. And I, I didn't know what to do with that. That wasn't what we were studying. So I declined and, and wanted to call that individual and say, look, your, your information's out there. But we couldn't do that because we couldn't compromise that. So uh, did that for a few years and then moved into uh, really online education. And during that time, I was going to buy a new house. And I like, you know, what appears from current news reporting, 52% of Americans don't look at their credit reports. And, and I was one of those. Well, I went to buy a house and found out that my credit was sub 500. And I was like, that's impossible. It, it just doesn't make sense. Turns out someone had stolen my identity. So that was my 
first uh, foray into identity theft and then trying to repair that on my own and, you know, calling the credit bureaus and getting the runaround over and over again. And each time you call in and you, you mail the form or you fax the form, you call back that same number and you get someone else and you have to start back all over again with the, the process. And, and very annoying, very time consuming, ultimately I was able to fix it after several months. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of money out of my pocket and then saw that all clear ID was hiring and knew that it was something that I could get behind um, having been a victim of that, knowing the process and knowing the pain that it causes. I was excited to join the company. So I joined the company about four years ago as an incident response manager. So when I did that, my job was to be the quarterback for the company that was having that data breach, provide the proposal, set up all the operational call center, the notification, was the communicator in the face of the company. So I did that for about two, three years and, and moved up the ladder here at the company. Uh, now I work with, with developing new partners, attorneys, cyber insurers, and third-party security companies. So, you know, local Austin companies, SpyCloud, CyberNance, uh, working with other companies that are in the space when the reality is their product, you know, maybe their product helps prevent the breach, but the reality is the breach is inevitable. So working with them to talk about our product and what we do so that if one of their customers does experience a breach, that they can send them our way and we can take care of them. So that's where I am now and, and, and absolutely love it. A couple of things about breach. Breach never sleeps. We always get that call on Friday at 530 when we're sitting down for our first drink at happy hour about a big breach. Might come at midnight. I haven't had a Thanksgiving in four years because it always happens then. So it's it's an exciting and fun business to be in. Yeah, they're not necessarily sitting down uh, for a nice warm meal uh, at that time. I hear you. feel sorry for yeah. you there. With that firsthand experience, it makes it a little bit more uh, personal in a way. Is that is that true? Oh, absolutely. I think most people don't understand, if they haven't been a victim of identity theft, they don't realize the trouble that it takes to get to prove to the credit bureaus or maybe to the banks or even a court that... I am, in fact, Alan Burson. I know that person represented themselves as me. I know they opened those loans. I know they did that. But the reality is I live in Austin, and all that was done in Chicago. So it couldn't have possibly have been me. But for you to have to go through and, and prove that is really, really frustrating. And, and that's what we help people do is get past that. Okay. Yeah, I know that's definitely fantastic. Great. Let's get things kicked off here by um... – Looking back on on 2017, which was such an interesting year when it came to to data breaches, you know, from your experience and, and your expertise, what are some of the big takeaways for the community from 2017 regarding you know, these data breaches of of all shapes and sizes? Yeah, I mean, 2017 was another new record. You know, we had 100, 1,579 notifiable breaches in the country. That's a rise of about 45 percent from the record high that we had in 2016. So it just continues year after year to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And with our reliance on computers and data, big data, you know, cars collecting data, all this data, it's data is everywhere. Uh, data is bigger than oil now. So we're just going to continue to see this, the spike grow, you know, and no one is safe from it. You know, whether it's the business sector, the government, banks, education, healthcare, it hits every single group of individuals or sectors or businesses. And, you know, I think more and more companies need to realize that, you know, last year when we had the ransomware, that was something that 
these hackers finally figured out an easy and fast way to make money. You know, it wasn't spectacular amounts of money, but Bitcoin here, five Bitcoin there, that's going to add up. And once they figured out that they could easily get this, you know, first they targeted healthcare. Once they figured it out that they could do this to the, to the doctors and the hospitals, they said, wait a minute, we could do this to CPAs and we can do this to everyone. So uh, we saw a huge increase in that. You know, hacking still continues to be the highest type of attack. About 60% of all breaches are related to, to hacking. So it's still there, and hacking involves the phishing and that ransomware. And then right behind that is, is employees are still responsible for a massive amount of data breaches, whether it's you know, answering that phishing email or it's you know, taking their laptop home at the end of the day, and even though their security team has said, look, your backpack is to never leave your site, they leave it in the car, they go grocery shopping, they come out, the window's busted, the laptop's gone, and they didn't have any type of security on that laptop. There's zero encryption. So if someone boots it up and takes the information right off, uh, that was really what we saw a lot of last year and you know, saw a huge increase in, in W2 theft, which we're seeing uh, even this year is already bigger than last. But credit card theft went down. The chips definitely helped. I think it was uh, Citibank the other day talked about the numbers of credit cards out there now. You know, 68% of their credit cards do now have chip and pins, which is great, but only about 20 to 30% of retailers actually utilize that, even though that went into effect uh, two years ago where they were supposed to use them. So they're able to show, at least from that, from a POS point of standpoint, that if you're using a chip and pin, the chances of your data getting stolen is very, very slim. So hopefully that trend will continue. Now, from your experience, not having insight into every single breach, but you know, with this trend that we keep seeing from a lot of the you know, major influencers in the community of getting back to the basics, I'm curious, uh, you know, from what you've seen, how much has just overall poor cyber hygiene played into the the rise of you know, so many breaches, or you made more companies vulnerable to such attacks? Tremendously, right? I think part of the problem is, and I see this when I go on site with clients, potential clients, whether it's a, a small healthcare system or hospital system in the East Coast or you know one of the largest retailers, you go in and there's this attitude amongst some of the IT group where they think they're smarter than the hackers or they're smarter than the next person. And what they've put in place to stop the breach is going to stop it. The reality is it's not going to stop it. It doesn't matter what you spend. We've seen that time and time again with companies, what they spend. You know, I can only imagine what Equifax spends on a yearly basis on preventing this from happening. But it was mm -hmm. as simple that they didn't, up, they didn't do an update on their system, allowed that. So, but you know, these companies spend tens of millions of dollars getting, you know, let's do the pen testing, let's get the best uh, firewalls, let's do this, let's train the employees. But wait a minute, we don't update our systems? Until they start doing that, we're going to continue to see these go at a record pace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. How have they evolved? You know, from your experience, uh, you know, back at the beginning of your career, you know, through where we are today, you know, how have breaches evolved? Yeah, I mean, they're getting. It's funny they're they're getting more sophisticated, but yet they're not. Uh, you know, when I started in the business, only you know four years ago a big thing was that people would break into doctor's offices and they would steal x-rays. Because at that point, an x-ray, when they took your x-ray and put it in you know, the, the massive files behind the receptionist desk, 
they would take an x-ray and they would put your first name, last name, and your social. That's how they identified you. So these criminals would go in, they would steal that to get that information and then throw them in the dumpster after they got their information and then they'd be stolen again because there was uh, some type of precious metal that they could recycle those for. You know, now you evolve to where these phishing schemes are really sophisticated, some of them, and others, you know, not as much, but it's that untrained employee who clicks reply or clicks open on the Excel file. And even though it says, this is a macro, there could be a virus, are you sure you want to open it? And they click yes, and then the ransomware is spread. So the sophistication is getting, in that sense, is getting more sophisticated. Uh, you know, you look at state, uh, nation state attacks, North Korea, Russia, um, where they literally spending, Russia, it's, I heard that Russia is now spending more money on their cyber attack teams run a nation take down their entire electrical grid, that does much more damage than a tank firing group of soldiers and taking their lives. So we'll continue to see that to the Olympics. Russia mm-hmm. attacked, you know, they, they released some malware or a virus and tried to disrupt the Olympics. And they, so we continue to see that. And then I think the biggest concern is really AI. You know, you now have a system that can work 24-7, that can work at a much higher scale than these hackers to continue on to get the firewall, to continue over and over again, learn why it's not going in, and get around that system. And, and it'll be interesting how the industries, whether it's care, retail, government, how everyone reacts to that and what they're able to do to stop that. I mean, is it, is it AI versus AI? It'll be interesting to see. So you were kind of going down the, the road where, where I was going with my next question here, but you know, curious on, on your end from your research, where do you see breaches evolving in um, you know, 2018, 2019, and beyond? I think it'll be a continuation of rants. Uh, again, it, it's, a, it's an easy thing for these hackers to do. Uh, they're playing on human error and human, uh, maybe ignorance is, 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 a, is the right word, to open that email, to reply to that email and put information. Um, and again, it's an easy way for them to make quick money. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. It doesn't have to be a nation state. So I, I think that'll be a, a big continued trend. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing you mentioned not too long ago here was the W2 based tax, I guess. I guess I don't know how else to, to say that, but you know, now that we're in full, swing uh, you know, here in, in tax season and you know, we're seeing individuals with uh, you know, their tax being filed by someone that isn't said taxpayer. What's going on with that and how can we look to protect ourselves from, from such uh, situations? Yeah, so, you know, it's growing. Last year, the government paid $8.7 billion in fake tax returns. It's literally a, a situation where someone sends an email knowing HR or accounting person Typically, it comes from the quote-unquote asking for the W-2s for all these years for some type of review. Hey, this is from the CEO. I better send this right away. And once they send it off, that take that information and file people's taxes. Again, $8.7 billion last year. They're expecting uh, north of $10 billion this year. And until these companies educate individuals, I do that, but until they educate them of you just don't send certain information, or you pay more attention to who you're replying to. Uh, one incident that, that I've heard of, the email in question 
came from CEO at gmail.com. It wasn't even on the domain of it. But people need to be aware of that. So companies aren't testing and training their employees to be aware of email phishing schemes, then this is a problem. The other problem, since the IRS, you know, immensely, they don't work with third parties. There are many third parties out there that, that could help them cut down this fraud. Sure. There are authenticate individuals for they receive the 10 to be 40 for me with my W-2s that they can verify, in fact, it is me before they send that money or before they put that money into an account. Okay. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about your time, you know, working with the, the incident response team. You know, what are some of the big takeaways or, or lessons that you learned in experiencing that? And this could be you know, on the technical side or working with individuals that have been fortunately breached. I, I guess, what are, what were some of the, the biggest takeaways for, for you? Well, I doubt one of the biggest takeaways, definitely that people don't prepare for when it happens. They, they take the time and the money to prevent it, and they assume that it's not gonna happen. The reality is if you're a business and you have data, you're and they're going to get information. So people don't think about that, and then what happens is, you know, maybe the secret calls them, maybe Brian Krebs calls them, and they say, yeah, your whole database, all 25 million, it's been stolen. And they go, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then it's panic, it's the hair on fire, So. I think one of the biggest takeaways is that people just don't prepare ways to plan and to prep for that. So, okay, let's let's get to the goal line, and then let's jump goal line, and we by planning and prepping. So, people not doing that, companies not doing that, I think is a huge, huge mistake. Sure. So, does that come in? You're building a dedicated response team. Does that tie into disaster recovery? I guess where where can we position ourselves to be effective in in post breach situations? Yeah, I think definitely people need to consider a response plan. Create it, test it, and then when you put it on the shelf, take it back down six months later, dust it off, make sure all the contacts are the correct people, make sure there hasn't been employee overturn, and if there has then try one so that they're ready for when that day happens. If you do that, then it is a hair on fire. And when you think about it for a company, it has to be amongst one of the worst days in business. You've just found out that, you know, you've been 50 years, you have all these loyal customers that continue to you, and now you have to tell them that you lost all of their data. And then if you look at it in a case of, you know, it's, it's happened many times, it's happened with Target. OPM, where clearly they didn't plan for when it happened. What about the public-facing side? It went terribly wrong. So not only did you lose my information, now you're telling me that you can't tell me what data, you can't tell me how many people, just call this number, and then when they call that number, they sit on hold for 60 minutes. You can't do that. You have to plan for all that stuff. And it's so easy to, people just don't think about it. So we're trying to change people's minds on that. We're trying to show them the right way of, of there's simple solutions. There's easy solutions. You know, let's create the plan. Let's test the plan and then go from there. Um, mm-hmm. Certain businesses are doing it. Not businesses are doing it. And until we have some type of federal mandate uh, about breach response, I think it's going to continue to be the same of people just thinking, yeah, it's never happened. Okay. Yeah. That's unfortunate. I, I, you got to agree with you, but uh, there's got to be a, a you know instrumental shift in, in 
the thinking there at, at some point, wouldn't you think? You would think so. I mean, you know, GDPR is getting ready to come online, and it's great. It's great for the techs people in the e. Maybe that's the catalyst. Maybe the current environment uh, of these mega breaches that are happening, the information that's being lost. At some point, you hope that the federal government steps in and says, okay, we now have 49 states that all have some type of notification law. The fact that there's still one that doesn't have it makes zero sense. So in that state, if your information is lost, you're told about it. But instead of having all these states, 49 different states, you have to notify in 30 days, the other state in 40 days, this one is saying, well, if your driver's license lost, you don't need to notify. But the other one says, if, if it is lost, you do need to notify. We need a central law that tells everyone, all businesses that hold personal data, this is what you have to do to make it right, to take care of the customer. Here's the protections that you have to give and you know, go that route. Sure. Without getting too, too deep in the weeds here on, on such a sensitive topic, do you think that it'll make a, a bigger impact from a federal law-based level, I guess, to you have like a finer or punishment for not sticking to you know, said regulations, or is it just a stricter, a stricter regulation and to be in compliance, you have to have said uh, you know, incident response program? No, I think you, you absolutely nailed it. For certain states that are more progressive when it comes to data breach response, the public side, as well as the actual breach itself, comes in 60 days response and they take 120, boom. If you misled the public about what information was lost, that this was lost, they do a fine. So there are there are states doing that. Let's be honest, it's a revenue for these states. So why wouldn't they do it? When they're protecting their citizens, they're, they're forcing these companies to be more honest or to be honest at all, and then they're able to find them when they fail to do that. I mean, uh, you know, if you if the car registration expires, get fined. So if we have these federal regulations and fines, I definitely think companies to think twice about how they're protecting the data, and then two, what once that data is compromised. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's always just an interesting thought, uh, you know, from my perspective of what's the best way to to go about that. Because if you have a big company and and they're bringing in a lot of revenue, they're employing a lot of your your people in your state. Why kick them while they're down? They're probably already struggling and have a huge expense to to get things back up and and running and potential lost business, et cetera, et cetera. Then on the other side, you got to protect your your citizens. You got to protect your people, and and it's it's so important to do so. So I've always just been curious on what's the best way to go about that, and you have the best you know overall impact for for society. There is a fine line. You're absolutely right. You got to protect the citizens. You want to protect that that revenue from the business. Yeah hold them accountable for how they're reacting. Mm-hmm. We're just continue to have companies that, you know, have a large incident and then six months later we're, we're finding out, oh wait a minute, our driver system was affected or this was affected. If there was fine, it wouldn't have happened. We would have known mm-hmm. sooner. Yeah, absolutely. How would you define a successful post breach response? It's really simple, to be quite honest. It's that the letters get out, they get out ma- mailed out correctly, and the people are answering the phones for people that have questions. In any business, there's the smaller shop. Um, it's the same thing as the big shop. 
and a smaller shop may sell for cheaper because they want to become bigger. So draw people in by half the prices. And you find out hey, that it was cheaper because it actually wasn't as good as what the big shop had. So finding the cheap vendor when they have a breach is a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Because what happens, those are the companies and your customers, it's your brand that they put those customers in a worse position by making them sit on hold for 60 minutes. So, you know, other good things with a good breach response is that, look at Home Depot. Home Depot is a perfect example, right? When they did their incident, he handled it so well. It was so successful. The media didn't pile on. Yes, information was lost. They came out ahead. They said what was lost. They didn't waver on that. They offered protections for their for the customers that were affected. And when that was done, the board begged him to stay on as CEO. So that's very rare in this in this industry. But um, it's that good response that's able to keep save jobs and save the company's brand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems so trivial, but um, you know, at the end of the day, it's been proven to to not be. So I love that Home Depot example. Uh, you know, definitely something that that we should look up to in the the community. Now, speaking of the community, my personal biggest pet peeve with the community and just the air around data breaches and the conversations that that come from data breaches is the lack of knowledge share when it happens of you know how it was handled how it was found out just the list goes on and on and it almost seems like we're depriving ourselves at, at points of sharing insight and making one another better by using examples it's almost like hey i want to hide in my hoodie and, and walk away and then you know, don't talk to me about it so it's one thing that i i just have still yet to understand why there isn't that knowledge share i get it in some respects but in other respects it just seems like we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot so you know i'd, I'd be curious from your perspective what are some of those challenges? Am I missing something here of why we can't share this insight about breaches and about post-breach response more effectively? That's a great point, Ben. I think if I admit to what went wrong and why it went wrong, now legally I can be held liable because I said X. I think that's the reason that it's not so open is the legal side. I think it's the fact that people know everything they can be used against them at that moment when all eyes are on them, when class action lawsuits are sitting there waiting, everyone's digits and waiting to sue someone. I, I, I think that's what keeps it from. I've tried to understand it, you know, and I still don't understand why people don't share those conversations and why they community in a sense when they talk about what they're doing to mitigate the risk or what they're doing after it happens. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I, like you, I will continue for, for the answer to that uh, because I that uh, we developed the community greatly with sharing of that knowledge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like it's probably in, in the technology sector, the most community or, or feel of a community, you, know, you don't see as many conferences and conversations. And now we got security Twitter that's just blowing up like crazy. There's you know, people sharing ideas and thoughts all the time, but you know, we, we just miss out on this piece. And it's almost like, me as a security professional, I'm more interested in sharing an article and almost kind of pointing the finger of, ha you've been breached. This is who could potentially be impacted. It seems like, you know, us as a community, 
we can only go so far until we can start having those conversations. But hey, you know, there's that legal piece that you make a, a you know, fantastic point there. From your perspective, if we were able to to be successful in, in doing that, and you know, maybe not pull that legal card, you know, how do you think that that would impact the community, you know, moving forward? I think it would be great, right? We have these conferences, we have a and we look at at the latest tool or the latest software that's going to prevent incidents from happening. It's going to, this is going to keep the bad guy out. But we don't have the conferences where we talk about what happened, what was successful, what did I do right, what did I do wrong, in case it happens again, I'm ready. Or for the company who hasn't had it, they can hear from people in the industry of how they responded, how they felt the response went, and what they would do differently. Mm-hmm. hope we do see that one day. Let's hop into overrated, underrated. Got a couple ones here for you. Um, excited to, to hear what your, your thoughts are. So let's get started with the power of marketing for security products. Is the hype around that overrated or underrated? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I, I, I think it's overrated. Uh, I think it's overrated in the sense of when you go to these large conferences and literally you're looking at a line of, of companies that do the exact same thing but it's the way that the marketing's done, shiny poster, or it's the great swag. Everyone goes to that booth, yet everyone in the row does the exact same thing. Okay, so you think that the power of marketing is impacting product selection? In, in, yes. And we should, we should, okay, okay, so, okay. I hear you there. Absolutely. I've always been curious because I, I see so many influencers talking about, you got to get through the marketing hype. You got to pick the, you know, pick the right solution for you. And I just been curious if you know, that power is, is truly there or if you know, us as a community are a little bit smarter than that and, and make the decision. But from your perspective, no, it sounds like not so much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's right. If you have great marketing, you, you can market anything. But at the end of the day, it's the reality of, does it really work and does it work correctly? It takes mm-hmm. me to do this, but until you see it do this, it's someone who, who has a really good degree in marketing, they've been around for a long time, and they know how to sell stuff. So I don't want to buy marketing. I want to buy the actual product. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next one. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but having a full-scale in-house security program instead of outsourcing practice areas to a managed service provider, is that overrated or underrated? Uh, I think it's underrated um, just because of, again, what I do in the industry is respond to data breaches. Massive amount of those data breaches is because of third parties. So from my side, it's a matter of having a team internally that knows the security knows the amounts of your versus not knowing where part A of the plan is. Oh, actually, that's with, that's with this company over here. We need to reach out to them. While I definitely understand third parties, if they're not 100% a part of your plan, which is so common, then I think that that's where the issue comes up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You, uh, you definitely got me there. I thought you were going to overrate that one, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was wrong. All right. Last one. We'll let you get out of here. This one's a little bit more complicated, I guess, but the importance of personal information security, specifically, uh, like learning or training how to be secure with your own information. 
so underrated, even on scale. You know, we, we, we think of a, the information that we share, overshare. We don't mention why we're sharing that information. Why, when I go to a doctor, do they need my Social Security number? They have my medical ID. They have all information, but I don't question that. And then on top of that, I don't question, and, and I'm hypersensitive again, doing what I do. We don't question what they're doing to protect that information. It, it's our phone. We have every world on our phones. One of the things that, that I'm saying is people who have phones on the back of their phone, they and their credit cards are in there, and their money's in there, and oh, by the way, their social and drops are in there. So now, not, not only when I lose my phone, I lose all of my information. So people don't take it serious enough. Mm-hmm. If someone calls you, the IRS is not going to call you and tell you taking you to jail if you don't provide them with your social and your banking routing number. And it's very, very common in this country, but people do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Alan. Well, hey, really appreciate it. Fantastic insight. And thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate you having me, Ben. Have a great day. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.